in the Bible, the book of Romans today, chapter 6, if you will take your Bible, and when you find it, stand up, and so we'll read together from God's Word. Romans chapter number 6, Romans 6, and today the subject is breaking the power of sin, breaking the power of sin. This is the 39th message today from the book of Romans. So I don't know if I'll live long enough to finish Romans. But if I don't, why, somebody else can pick it up and take off, huh? Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Question. What are we going to say to the people who have been saved by grace but continue to sin? He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Verse 6, knowing this, our old man. Now, the old man, if you're not familiar with that term, refers to all that I am outside of Christ. The old man is what I am before I trust Christ as my Savior, before justification. Okay? So we know that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin, that's our old nature, might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. And now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Go to verse 11. Likewise, Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but you're under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Absolutely not. God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And Heavenly Father, will you speak through me to the people who have gathered today, to those who watch on television and wherever. Oh, Lord, use this to help us to break the power of sin in our life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. If you begin to study the New Testament, your Bible, you figure out pretty quickly that there are three phases to salvation. Three phases to salvation. If you're a Christian today, you are in one of those phases, of course. Number one, the first phase deals with our past. And that means we can say, I was saved. I have been saved as a point of fact. Now, what I mean, what do you mean when you say I've been saved? What do you save from? 
Well, you've been saved from the penalty of sin. And let me say quickly, only the penalty of sin. This is what we call justification. We mean when I say that there was a day when I was saved that I received Christ as my Savior. And that the moment that I received Christ as my Savior, I was justified, the doctrine of justification, meaning that God forgave me of my sins, every sin. God pardoned me from the penalty of my sin. God, in fact, declared me to be righteous. Now, I didn't didn't say he made us righteous. I said he declared us. That's a judicial term. That's a legal category theologically. He declared us to be righteous. In his mind, he looks at us as being righteous because he views us through the lens of Calvary, that he looks at me and he says, you know what? When Christ died on the cross, Bill Monroe was there identified with Jesus Christ because he has become a Christian. And whatever happened for Christ, at Christ or in Christ also happened with everyone who believes in him. So he declares me to be righteous. My sins have been paid for. There's a wonderful verse of scripture that I have not used so far in the series. It's found in the book of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Just write it there if you will. Maybe in the margin of your Bible be a good place to put it. But here's the verse. Hebrews 2 9 says that Christ tasted death for all men. He tasted death for all men. He died in the place of all men. I love that verse. I meet these people who want to argue with me about, did Christ die for everyone or did he just die for the elect, a certain group of people? Well, I love to turn them to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Christ tasted death for every person. There's no doubt that he died for every single one. So that's the past. I was saved. But there's a second phase to salvation, and that is I am being saved. That's present tense. The penalty of sin has been taken care of when I got saved. That's the past. The present tense of my salvation is I can say I am being saved. Every day I am being saved. And you say, well, I don't know about that. Well, what do you mean? I mean that I am being saved from the power of sin. And when I say that I'm being saved from sin's power, I'm referring to the fact of sanctification. Being saved from the penalty of sin is justification. Being declared righteous, pardoned, and forgiven, and acquitted of sin. But being saved from the power of sin on a day-by-day basis, that is sanctification. And that's present tense, that Christ, when he died on the cross, broke the power of sin. And that's Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, where we are right now. Now, justification saved from the penalty of sin is is Romans 3, 4, and 5. Now we're in 6, 7, and 8, and it's present tense. I am being saved on a day-by-day basis. We call that sanctification. Now, last week, I went over sanctification. Are you listening to me? Is everybody with me right now? 
Do I have your, do I have your brain's attention up here, or is your body just sitting there vegetating? Okay, now look here. I, you've got to get this, because most everybody in here claims to be a Christian. What does sanctification mean? I told you the definition last week. It comes from a Latin word, sanctus, meaning to make holy or holy. And from sanctification, we get the word saint. And we say someone is a saint. In fact, all saved people are saints. The Bible was written to the saints of God. A saint is a holy person. We get the word sanctuary. It's a holy place, a place that's been dedicated to the glory of God and for the use of God's people. Sanct, sanctification, all those words, they, they are very closely related. And it means simply to make holy, to set apart for holy purposes. Last week, if you remember, I sanctified one of these flowers. I pulled it out and separated it from that cluster of flowers and said, this is set apart for a holy purpose to illustrate my point. And that's sanctification. Now, sanctification is the forgotten doctrine today. The reason I keep defining it is I don't think many of you have ever heard the word until the last week or two, and that's not a slight at you. It's that it's not being preached and it's not being taught anymore. How many of you remember the days in America when you went to a church, and especially a Baptist church? The preacher, I mean, he had leather lungs. He got with it. And you know what? If you're a Christian, you don't smoke, you don't drink, you don't go to the show with girls that do, you don't do any of those things like that. And most of the sermon was what Christians are not supposed to be doing, and it was long and loud and hot, right? How many of y'all remember those days? I mean, he got with it. He worked up a ladder. I've had people tell me, if you don't sweat through your suits, you haven't really preached. Well, the point is, there was a lot of that, and I don't know how much good it did, to be very honest, because we told people, don't, 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 and we didn't tell them what to do, and the truth is, is you can cut out all that stuff in your life. I mean, a guy in prison isn't doing much of that, but, you know, it doesn't mean he's holy in his heart, does it? Now, sanctification not only says, don't do some things, don't do anything that's displeasing to the Lord. But sanctification said, you must become holy. As a Christian, it is God's plan for you to be holy in your life. And man, when have you heard that in our world today outside of Romans chapter 6? Now, over in your Bible, look with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Real quickly, 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you will look there in verse number one, uh, 14. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, so you will know, this is not what Bill Monroe said. This is scripture. And it says, as obedient children, we are not to fashion ourselves according to the former lust or desires that was in our life before we were saved, when we were ignorant of God's plan. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation now, our King James Bible's word conversation means lifestyle. Be holy in your lifestyle. See, it's not about what you don't do as much as it is about what you do do. Because it is written, and he repeats it, be ye holy, for I am holy. And that's a quote from the Old Testament. 
So sanctification is God's desire for every Christian, not just the preacher, the staff, or the deacons, or the old people. Sanctification is God's plan to make every single one of you a holy person, a true saint. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 3 says, sanctification is the will of God for you. We looked at that last week. In John 17, 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus prayed that you would be sanctified. Sanctification, becoming holy, is God's plan for everybody in this building and everybody watching today on television. And so the point is this. That doctrine is being forgotten and it's being, and it's minimized because we have this idea that we're not seeker-friendly if we preach on these kinds of topics. And I've come to it here. Do you want me to skip it and say, ah, it's not important? No, it's as much a part of God's plan as is your salvation. And the problem we have today is you really can't tell much difference in people who are saved than people who are not saved, who don't profess to be saved. We've got about the same divorce rate. We've got about the same rate for locking people up who don't pay their taxes. We've got about the same rate for all the social problems of doing drugs. People who call themselves are doing everything, uh, people who call themselves Christians are doing everything unsaved people do. And the church doesn't address it. And my point is not to put you on a guilt trip. Don't, Don't let me hear that. If you're really listening to me, it's not my role to put you on a guilt trip. That's the Holy Spirit's role. My role is to tell you that God's plan for you is to grow out of those sins that that possess us and control us and rule in our lives and to become godly people, holy people, that the world can see Christ living in us. And so sanctification then is a process. It's a process. It doesn't happen in a minute. It's a lifelong process. It's not like being saved. The making, or or pardon me, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of one moment. You can get saved like that this morning. But the making or growth of a saint is the process of a lifetime. Now, there's a third tense of salvation, which I won't deal with today. I was saved. Justification, salvation happens in a moment. I am being saved, sanctification, God working in me to make me like Christ, to make me holy. And then there is the future tense, I shall be saved. That's glorification. We'll get to that in chapter 8 at the end of it. Glorification where God says, I'm going to take you out of the presence of sin. So God's plan for dealing with sin with a Christian is he's forgiven us. The penalty of sin was removed at Calvary. The power of sin is being removed on a day-by-day basis to give us victory in our lives. And the presence of sin, someday we will be free from that. Now, let's go back to verse 1, the question. Shall we then continue in sin that grace may abound? We live in such a broken world. It's sinful. It's fallen. Terrible things are happening all the time. Evil is all around us. Temptation overwhelms us sometimes, and it's everywhere. Such a broken, 
broken world, so much sadness and unhappiness, and all of it brought about by sin. Now, here's the experience of the average American Christian. I got saved at a church or maybe on my own at home somewhere. Somebody led me to Christ. I heard it on television radio, and I became a Christian. And I thought that when I became a Christian, boy, I wasn't going to have any more problems with sin. I just thought, wow, I'll just skate right on through. And I very sincerely began to attend church, to read my Bible, to seek the Lord in my life. And then, wham, I fell. I was so disappointed in myself. I knew I shouldn't be thinking thoughts like that, doing things like that, saying words like that. I, I was so disappointed in myself. But I knew what to do. I'd learned enough that I got down on my knees I truly was contrite and repented. I, for, I asked the Lord, I confessed my sin to him and asked him if he would wash me in the blood of Christ and forgive me my sin because I heard the Bible said that, and so I did that. And I got back up, and you know what? For a while I was living for the Lord, and then bam, here it goes again. And I fell into something else. I'm so ashamed of myself. Why did I? I know that's not right. And then I went through that cycle again. And after going around that cycle about X times, I began to just be disillusioned. And I said, you know what? It doesn't work. Christianity doesn't work. I faulted the whole system. I blamed the Lord, basically. It doesn't work. I blamed the church and the preacher. Ah, that stuff doesn't work. I've tried it. And we just give up sometimes and, and just give in to sin. So the point is this. How do we break the cycle? How do we break the power of sin in our life? Is it possible? I didn't say how do we become perfect because nobody's perfect. There's not one among us who is sinless without sin. But how do we break the power of sin the cycle that just goes over and over and over that disillusions us and discourages us and makes us ineffective for the Lord's use. How do we break it? All right, write this down. Please get this. Sanctification comes about through no effort of your own. You are not sanctified because of willpower. I'm not going to sin anymore. No, you don't do that. Sanctification comes about through no effort of your own. Then how does it come about? We merely provide the right conditions. And when a Christian provides the right conditions, sanctification begins to really happen in your life. You be begin to progressively, step by step, Become like Christ and begin to live a holy life. Well, what are the conditions? Well, I've told you and I'll tell you again. But think of it like this. Here's a farmer. Farming is the most natural process, I guess, you can think of. Here's the farmer. And the farmer says, you know what? I hope I'll have a good crop this year. I'm just going to pray and ask the Lord to give me a good crop. Well, what's going to happen? He's going to have zero crop. 
He has to provide the conditions. Now, he can't make things grow, but he can plow a field. That's creating a condition. He can put fertilizer in that field. That's creating the condition. He can make sure that field is weeded and cultivated. That's creating the conditions. And then he puts the seed in the ground, and the seed is covered and tamped down, and now he's met most of the conditions. Now, he still can't control the crop totally because it's got to rain, and the sun's got to shine and, and, and all that. But he has created the conditions for success. If you are serious, my friend, about the Christian life, you must create the conditions for success. You can't just say, Lord, I'm sorry, I just sin all the time, and I'm going to continue in sin, and your grace will forgive. Uh-uh. No, that isn't the way it's supposed to work. How do we break the cycle? You can't sanctify yourself by your self-discipline and your adherence to duty and by wanting to do it with willpower and discipline. That's the mistake I think so many Christians have in their mind. You know how you become a saint, a holy person? And if you, by the way, if you have no desire for that, I mean, the Holy Spirit's who gives us that desire, isn't he? When you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes in and he gives you that desire. And the question is, how do I do it? Well, it's not through efforts of my own. Look at that screen. It is through providing in my life the conditions where the Lord can work in my life and make me what he wants me to be. Well, you say, what are those conditions? There are two of them in this chapter. And only two, and they're very simple. Two words. If you remember these two words, you understand now how to create the conditions. Number one is reckon. You find it in verse number 11 of Romans 6. Verse 11, likewise reckon you also yourself to be dead to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And therefore, if you'll do that, Sin will not reign in your mortal body that you should obey the lust of it. Reckon. Get that word? Reckon? My mom used to use that word in a different way. I'd say, Mom, what do you think about me going to, well, I reckon. Do you use the word like that sometimes? That's an old word, and I'm old enough I say that. I reckon so. What do I mean? I think so, but there's a little twinge of doubt. I'm not 100%. I'm 90% sure. I reckon it to be so. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Actually, the word reckon, normal usage is to count something or to number. So you could read it and say in verse 11, likewise reckon or count you yourself to be dead unto sin. Reckon. It's, it's simply to, I could say, somebody go outside and reckon the number of cars on the parking lot, the sum of the cars on the parking lot. That would be the proper use of it, to count. But there's another very important definition, if you look in Webster. And I want you to write this down beside that word reckon there in verse 11. To reckon means to have absolute confidence in what you know to be true to have absolute confidence in what you know to be true. 
And so here is a ship's captain, and he's over here on the ocean somewhere, and there's a fog comes in, and he is absolutely lost. He gets out his map. He gets out his compass. He knows how to calculate. I won't go into all of that. But then he says, I have reckoned. That's where they use the term in navigation. I have reckoned our position to be, and he points to the map and the chart. What he means is, I know this chart is accurate. I know my compass is accurate. I know how long we've been proceeding in this direction. And so, therefore, I know where we are. I can reckon our position. I have absolute confidence in this chart and in this confidence in this compass. An airplane pilot does the same thing. They talk about, in fact, they use the term dead reckoning. (laughs) It's an interesting term. And you remember when the plane disappeared over the uh, uh, Indian Ocean a couple of years ago now? And they were looking for the plane. They couldn't find it anywhere. You know what they did? They knew where the plane took off. Fixed position. They knew how fast the plane was going how long it had been going in that direction, and they knew from the radar where it was. And so they could calculate, they could reckon. They had confidence, absolute confidence in what they knew to be true, and they said the plane's got to be somewhere in this area. Now, let's make an application here to Christianity. What do I know to be true that will help me to break the power of sin in my life? I know that whatever God says to me What God has declared to be true about me is true. Well, what has God declared? Okay, take your Bible, Romans chapter 6, verse number 7. Here's what I know. He says that I am dead, uh, verse 8, I am dead with Christ and I'm dead from sin. I'm free from sin, rather. Look in verse number 18, if you will. Verse 18, being free from sin. Look in verse 22, being made free from sin. Over and over and over, he says, he uses this term, you are free from sin. Now, he means you're potentially free from sin. He doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. We know that sin remains in us, but that sin should not reign in us. Sin remains in me after I have been saved. But sin should not reign, R-E-I-G-N, rule and control and dominate my life. And so the Bible says, I know, what, is, what is it to reckon? Is to have absolute confidence that what you know is, to be tr- is true. And what do I know? The Bible says I'm free from sin. In verse 11, it says I'm dead from sin. In verse 14, it says that sin is not to have dominion over me. It's telling me there's a way out that I can break the cycle of sin in my life. Now, listen to me. This is not a mind game I'm playing here either. You're not talking yourself into something. This is not a mind game. It is living in the constant awareness that God says, you don't have to sin, that I have given you the power to break the cycle of sin in your life. Let me illustrate it for you, what I think is a good way to, illust- to think about it. At the end of the Civil War, there were millions of slaves in America. 
And Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, in which meant from the moment that he lifted the pen from that parchment, every slave in America was free. That slavery would be no longer tolerated, that it was against the law, and every single slave in America was immediately set free. And no longer in bondage, they were equal to and free as anybody else in the country. Well, they didn't act free. The slave, many of the slave people, in fact, spent the rest of their life still acting like slaves. They didn't reckon. It didn't get down into their heart and soul that what Abraham Lincoln had signed, they didn't have absolute confidence that it was true. Oh, they heard that they were free, but they were not free. And all kinds of things that played into that, of course. The power of slavery was broken by Lincoln. But old habits kept them in bondage. Old beliefs, old fears, illiteracy, poverty, feelings of inadequacy, held them back, the scars of the slavery that they had experienced. They were free, in fact, legally speaking. They were not free in reality in terms of practically speaking. And they had to learn to think differently. They had to learn to reckon, to count with absolute confidence. Now, the country had said, you're free now. And so it was a process of rethinking for them to be able to achieve a feeling that I'm free, I'm no longer a slave. Now, let's take that over and put it in the Christian realm. And here I am, I've gotten saved. But I'm in bondage. I'm a slave of sins. Old habits, old thought patterns, old friends that pull me down, old ideas old circumstances that I'm playing back to. And I think, I'll never know how I can break this cycle, this habit, this addiction to sin. How am I ever going to be able to do that? Well, it starts by reckoning that I have absolute confidence that Romans chapter 6 says, you're free from sin. You're free from sin. You're dead to sin. You have sin remaining in you, but you don't have to let sin reign, create the conditions, and the fruit of sanctification will begin to bloom and blossom and become a reality in your life. The second word is yield. The conditions. I don't have to be a slave to sin. I can break the cycle. Now, I've got to want to. I maybe should have made a point out of that. But my friend, if you don't even care about becoming like Christ, I declare we need to have a talk. There's something really missing there. The Holy Spirit gives you that desire. You should have that just because you've been saved. It ought to already be there. Now, yield. look in verse 13. Neither yield ye your members, that's the body, parts of your body, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but positively yield yourselves to God 
And then if you will, go down to verse 16. Know ye not that to whoever you yield yourself, a servant, or basically that's a slave, to obey his servant you are. And then go on with me again down to verse 19. I speak after the manner of men because the infirmity of the flesh. For as you have yielded your members' servants to unclean things and iniquity, even so now yield your members to living a life of holiness. That word yield again, let me explain it. There's a sign on the highway out here that says yield. means defer, give way to the people who are coming by. Or we say the acre of farmland will yield 40 bushels of corn or something. Or we say the yield on a bond is 2% or whatever it may be. In the military, to yield means to surrender, to present your sword to the one that has won the war and you sign up like the Japanese did at the end of, of World War II to General MacArthur. You know the scene. Now, reckon has to do with, in our minds, counting something as true and having absolute confidence in it, but yielding is a will. So if I'm going to become this person who is holy, growing in holiness, who is breaking the cycle of sin in my life, if I'm going to become that kind of person, I've got to learn to yield, and that's my will. It's an amazing principle. Look there in verse number 16. We either are serving sin or we're serving the Lord. There's no other options there. We serve sin. Sin is the master of my life. It dominates me, sinful impulses and act, activity. Or I'm a servant of the Lord. But I'm serving one or the other. You say, well, I'm not. I live for myself. Uh-huh, that's exactly what I thought. Servants of unrighteousness. The Bible is very clear about it. It's an amazing principle. But you don't have to do that. Now listen to me. So you've been working at a, a job here for, in a business. And the business is sold and new ownership comes into the business. Have a completely new owner. Your old boss, you used to work for him and man, he was a hard taskmaster. He was a hard guy to get along with. He was a hard guy to, to like. But now you have a new boss. Let, let's call the old boss Mr. Sin. He was a tyrant. Boy, he dominated your life. The new boss, let's call him Mr. Jesus. My, he is the most gracious, loving, understanding, helpful person you've ever been around, the new boss. So you have a new boss. You got rid of that old boss, except he doesn't really leave. He hangs around the plant. He hangs around the business. And every day you walk up the hall and you see him. Sometimes he comes and stands in the door of your office. He's always around. Now, but he's not the boss anymore. You have a new boss, Mr. Jesus. If you allow Mr. Sin to tell you what to do, he'll do it. He's still acting like the old boss. But do you know what? You don't have to listen to Mr. Sin anymore because you're dead to Mr. Sin. His relationship to you and role and power over you is dead. You are free now to live only and obey Mr. Jesus. 
but you can't obey both of them. You've got to make the choice, and that's your choice, of course. Now, if you look in verse 12, he specifically tells us, don't let sin therefore reign. Circle that word reign. That means to control, to rule, to dominate your mortal body. Not, now, mortal body. Mortal, that's the word death. Mortuary, mortician. Mortal. Don't let the part of you that can die, don't let the mortal body or, or yield the mortal body, rather. Yield the part of you that is going to die. That's the part of you that we're having the trouble with. In verse 13, look at it again. It talks about the members of that body. And what is he talking about? So yield your hands. Yield your feet. Yield your lips, your eyes, your ears. Those are the things that cause us trouble, aren't they? All the sin comes in through one of those members of my body. I'll read to you from the Amplified Version. Listen to this real carefully. As you yielded your bodily, bodily members and faculties as servants to impurity and lawlessness, so now yield your bodily members once for all as servants to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. Now, I know you got room on your program and I hope you'll write these down. We'll give you five words, and then I'll be through. Number one, the practical application of what I've taught you this morning. Number one is yield. If you want to grow in your holiness, in your Christ-likeness, in your Christian life, in your maturity spiritually, number one, you yield. That means you've got to be intentional. That means you've got to plan not to sin. You've got to think about it, and I'm going to yield to the Lord and rather to my desires. The next time that situation comes up, I'm going to yield. I'm going to believe what God has said rather than follow my feelings. Number two, the motivation for sanctification is gratitude. It's gratitude. Genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ really went to that cross... If that is actually true, that he died for my sins to set me free from sin, my, I could never repay him. Anything he wants me to do is enough. I have a desire to please him. Look, folks, living the Christian life is not doing what they tell you to do at the Baptist temple. It's not pleasing Bill Monroe or your best friend or your wife or husband. The motivation, the only pure motivation for the Christian life is that you don't want to disappoint Jesus Christ. If he, in fact, died on that cross for me, I do not want to fail him. And that's all the motivation you need to see your life really change. Number three, learn to hate sin. Learn to hate sin. I have a hate message this morning. (laughs) I wish America would learn to hate sin. You know, the Bible says in Psalm 97, verse 10, you may want to look it up, see that I'm telling you the truth. Psalm 97, 10, you that love the Lord 
hate evil. And we kind of today have this good Lord, good devil type thing. Oh, I love the Lord, but, you know, I, I, I don't really hate sin either. I'm kind of, you know, some of it I kind of like, in fact. No, no. If we love the Lord, we hate that which opposes the Lord and sin. Number four, keep your mind saturated with the Word of God. What I'm doing right now, teaching and preaching through these passages, as you read your Bible on your own, as you attend Sunday school, as you're around God's people and you talk about it, as you study on your own, as you go to church, then if you keep your mind full of God's Word, you will grow in holiness. And number five, immediately confess and seek forgiveness when you sin. Anytime you sin, don't let the sun go down. Confess it to the Lord. Remember that he died for that to set you free from it. And call out to him. and He will help you. He wants you to break that sin cycle as a Christian and live pleasing to him. And when you do, one hour of living with a clear conscience that Jesus is proud of me and pleasing, pleased with what I'm doing. One hour, that's worth a whole day of anything else, I'll tell you that. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, in prayer, please.